BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Jenna Wortham. I'm Wesley Morris. We're two culture writers at the New York Times. I mostly write about how humans relate to technology. And I mostly write about how popular culture relates to humans. And this is the season finale of Still Processing. How are you? I'm sad because, you know, we're going to take our semi-annual break. We've done these 26 episodes. We're going to come back in a couple months and do 26 more. Mm -hmm. And I'm excited about that. But, you know, this is a part of my diet. (laughs) Well, yeah, mine too. I've got to find another way to spend this energy. To say goodbye. So what's happening with you? I mean, I'll start somewhere high on the spectrum because... Earlier this week, I went and saw an amazing concert at Irving Plaza. I saw Sid Bennett, formerly Sid the Kid of the Internet and Odd She's Future. not Sid the Kid anymore? She just goes by Sid. She's on her solo tour. She's got her solo album out. And, you know, she's magnetic. And, you know, I've written about her before. And I remember describing her as like she has like a Tiger Beat persona. And mm-hmm. I, I felt like maybe that was a little bit much at the time. But last night, I mean, these women were losing it. Mm. And she was just eating it up. And she sounded great she looked great we should play a little bit from the album because it's really incredible i like the way this sounds yeah and you know look she's a young genderqueer 20 something year old and it's new in my life to watch a woman on stage singing about her love for other women. So I just, it was great. Well, that sounds great. I will be stocking up on Sid, no mm-hmm. longer the kid. Mm-hmm. What else? This week I also saw Losing Ground. Oh, yay! Which is Kathleen a film Collins. by Kathleen Collins about a woman and her husband and their marriage and their relationship and just desire and melancholia. Um, Where did you see it? MoMA was screening it as part of a larger series on black intimacy. Did you know that it's thought to be the first feature-length drama directed by a black woman, a black American woman? Absolutely, 100%, yes. I mean, I kind of knew that. The film's out of print. It's hard to see it if you you don't go to a special screening. But I just, again, it, it flows into this other thing about Sid where I just, I'm so unaccustomed to seeing these narratives and these emotions mm-hmm. on a screen or on mm-hmm. a stage. Mm-hmm. And I just... I'm overwhelmed with appreciation for these women who are out here making art, despite all the forces that try to keep them from doing it. Amen to that. Number three. Well, I've just been following along. I mean, this is in the same exact thread, but I've just been following along this controversy online about the Netflix documentary about the life and death of Marsha P. Johnson, who oh, was a black yeah. trans activist, mm-hmm. was known for starting Stonewall riots, was found dead. Her death was ruled a suicide. It was highly suspect. And so there's been a lot of intrigue in trying to understand what happened to her and also to celebrate her life. And Raina Gossett, who is a filmmaker, a writer, and an activist, and also a black trans woman, has come out and said that the person who worked on the Netflix film... David France. ...took her ideas. And 
who knows, right? Like these are things that are very hard to prove and very hard to know. But watching this dynamic back and forth just reminds me of all the power structures and hierarchies that still exist and still dictate who gets to make what projects and which projects get the most attention. Mm-hmm. And all of it's overshadowing in a lot of ways the life and death of Marsha B. Johnson. So right, right, right. Um, I don't know. I just want to raise it because it's something I've been thinking about. And I've, I've been on panels with Raina. She's br- absolutely brilliant. It just feels like a shame that these two things can't exist in the same space and time. Yeah, I don't know. I like David France a lot. I think that, you know, he's a really good user of archival footage. I haven't seen the life and death of Marsha P. Johnson yet. I'm looking. I was looking forward to seeing it. I still am looking forward to seeing it. We have to watch all the things to be able to have a real conversation about them. Raina's movie is still in progress, but if you want to learn more about it, you can go to happybirthdaymarsha.com. I support her. I believe her. We should assess her body of work as critically as we are David's too. Right. I mean, this might be relevant to some of the things you're thinking about. Well, what's <laughs> what's on your uh, top of your charts? I don't even know where to start. Northern California is on fire. Yeah. And it is killing people and displacing people and it is really terrifying. I don't know. It's just another, it's our weekly natural slash unnatural disaster lament and, you know, are sending our hearts. I mean, do we have, we got a lot of hearts. We can send them to as many places as they need to go. But right now they're going to Northern California along with Puerto Rico and the Caribbean islands. And it's overwhelming. The south of this country. The state of disaster um, in this country is over. The Rohingya people. I mean, there's just a lot of, a lot of anguish in the world. And I have nothing to mollify that. Tom Petty died last week. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom Petty, one of the great songwriters that we that never gets talked about in a Mount... The way we sort of tend to Mount Rushmoreize everything, it tends to not include a person like Tom Petty. Like mm-hmm. it's Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen. The Beatles, but Tom Petty wrote really great, unhappy pop songs. Mm-hmm. They get classified as classic rock, but I don't think they're classic rock to me. I'm not to me. They're like really these gleaming gems of 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 jangle and twang and chug. This is not my favorite Tom Petty song, but Jammin' Me from 1987, I think, from Let Me Up, I've Had Enough, is mm. a great example of the kind of thing that he does really well very much like this perfect balance of of a of a of a pop structure with a rock sound so let's listen a little bit of jamming me Also, I don't even know where to start with this, but I was really holding off to dealing with, you know, mentioning Hugh Hefner's having died also, because mm. I didn't really know what to do with it. I'm a gay man. I thought the thing that Hugh Hefner was offering me was not really for me, mm. but he created a culture and the culture he created permeates just about everything we've done since 1950, 1951, 1952. And he not only established a template by which we think about beauty, I think he also established a template by which men think about their relationships to women. Yes, absolutely. And the connection between the sort of sexual revolution he created for men, and it's funny because when he died, people talked about Hugh Hefner 
you know, create like establishing sexual liberation for for all people. But mm. it wasn't really Mm-mm. sexual liberation for all people. Mm-hmm. It was sexual liberation for men. And I've just been experiencing this Harvey Weinstein avalanche uh, that got started last week when the New York Times ran what for many entertainment journalists had been a long attempt to get women to talk about Harvey Weinstein's having sexually harassed them. And I just feel like there's a really straight line from Hefner to the culture that we've been talking about all year. Yeah, absolutely. At these companies fostering these cult this culture in which it's okay to degrade and and proposition women. It's not even workplaces. It's, it's I would life. say it's, it's just life. It's just, it's life. just the culture of the I mean what we're getting a window into right now is unfortunately the day-to-day experience of being a woman. I mm. mean it, you don't have to work in an office to experience this kind of harassment. <sighs> so depressing. Anything else? I saw Blade Runner. Me too. 2049. Mhm. Why why? Why not? Why does it exist? Why do we have it? Why do we need it? You're really going to ask questions you know the answer to? Ka-ching, 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 except not In really. theory, except right. not really. But um, we should talk about it because there was a lot of interest in this movie because the original one seemed to have some messaging about the future that was useful. And I think people saw it because they wanted to also be challenged in ways to think about the future and whether or not we're walking into a dystopic scenario. And yeah, they were, yeah. Yeah. Led astray. <laughs> now we're we've passed the movie's original. We're we're almost at the movie's 2019 start point. Start point. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Let's let's talk about that for a second, and then I I really I just really want to talk to you about what's going on right now with these Weinstein allegations of of rape and assault and mm. harassment, mm-hmm. and how more than any other year I can think of since in in my lifetime anyway. This has been at the center or like very much near the center of American culture and life. And it's not just the accusations now. It's it's the culture around the accusations is now being challenged. Right. I can't think of a better person to talk to about it than you. And I have feelings about the particulars of the Weinstein situation, which is growing (laughs) by the day. But I also think that it would just be useful to kind of try to understand what is going on right now in terms of why this is happening in 2017. Let's get to it. There's something undefinable that beckons travelers back to the greater Fort Myers area in southwest Florida year after year. It feels like bare feet on soft white sand beaches that give way to gently lapping waves. It looks like the breathtaking abundance of wildlife, colorful birds, dolphins, manatees, and more, dwelling in lush mangrove ecosystems and translucent gulf waters. It tastes like fresh coastal cuisine served at sunset at a waterfront restaurant. What will draw you back to Fort Myers? Go to visitfortmyers.com for more inspiration. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show... It's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with the New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, 
plus This American Life shorts, which are hand-picked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good, but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. We are back. I just want to talk to you very quickly about Blade Runner 2049. Okay. Essentially, it is loosely based on a Philip K. Dick story called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? It's set in a world that sort of dystopic world in which technology and humanity have rubbed together so much that they are virtually conjoined in this way that according to the movie, a place like Times Square in New York City and I would say, I don't know, Bangkok or Tokyo are one city. There's a kind of humidity and sweatiness and the smog is sort of turned into a permanent night. Um, and even during the day, the sunlight is sort of suffused with this, or the smog is suffused with the sunlight that creates this strange rhyming on all the images so that it just looks, everything looks strange. Like something is, every space in this, in, in that Ridley Scott movie is pregnant with some, some foreboding, but also some terrible history. And it's weird because those aren't necessarily values that you go to the movies to experience. What you want is a story. And this story is not that great. It's basically a, it's basically a, a story about how this human-created race of robots called replicants, they're androids, have gotten free. And the, the, the assignment of, these, of this special police force called Blade Runners yeah. is to hunt them down and kill them. So Harrison Ford's assignment, he plays... Deckard. Rick Deckard. He's yeah. a young gumshoe detective out on the on the mean and slick streets of futuristic Los Angeles looking for these runaway slaves. I mean robots trying to <laughs> track them down and retire them. Right. But is he really who he thinks he is? I mean, that's really the best way to describe Blade Runner. There's a lot of things happening. There's there, a lot right? of things I mean, happening. It, it. it is it is responsible for a wing of of so much of the world's visual culture. Well, the movie came out in the 80s, and I mm-hmm. think a lot of early internet culture really borrowed from this, like, cyber steam, like, you know, steampunk, cyberpunk aesthetic of, like, rickshaw and rickety and, you know, I mean, now we're living in a very sleek, minimalist, modern, Apple has made everything really clean and white and nice and tidy, but I think there was a move that wasn't the initial look and feel of a lot of technology things were clunky they look like you know like atari they were boxy they were noticeable mm-hmm. you felt the machinery and i think blade runner maybe had a lot to do with that because there was a sense of you were you were able to really l- touch and feel things that felt futuristic and right. technology and software were very very visible we've really since moved away from that everything to go back to it was Wally, very ibm tech we love. Though, yeah right? it was like, very, I mean, that was its that yeah. was its relationship to like technology but nonetheless it looked Cool. It looked very cool. I mean, you wanted Big to screens, you wanted to be in that world as like cancerous as it seemed, as as suffused with pollution and rot as it seemed. Everybody looked great. So I just I feel like if you're gonna make a Blade Runner movie in 2017, you really have to. You have two options, I guess. One is to sort of try to go beyond 
1982 version. Mm -hmm. Or you just kind of have to acknowledge that you can't win and just go some other way. It felt like the most futuristic thing they could imagine was that L.A. now has winners. Mm -hmm. I think for me, it's really hard now in 2017 to not think about the ways in which we're so engaged with things like immigration, things like exploitative labor practices, the way we're, we're really tangling with hierarchies and power systems. And, you know, frankly, like this movie comes out on the same day or right around the same time our president announces that people should rat out their neighbors if they think they're immigrants to ICE. So when you're watching a movie about an exploited labor force that's <laughs> yeah. trying to escape and find its freedom and live a different kind of life. And it's hard to lose yourself in this vision of the future because the version of the present we're living in is already more dystopic and futuristic than they were able to put on screen. Right. This is sort of apolitical, agnostic, I would say weirdly unimaginative. There is a scene in the movie where um, oh, I know what you're the new CEO of the replicant oh. company, yes. played by Jared, Jared Leto, who is, is he part black because he never ages like what's going on (laughs) he's talking about the role that these creations have played in the advancement of human society and he's like they are necessary for us to progress and no one really challenges that like no one really challenges he's like at at every turn of civilization we view slave labor and no one really I, I think that was the most depressing part of the film for me that that's also we've just accepted that that's how things are going to continue to work for the time being. I was well, just sort of like, is this the future? Well, you know, you guys, come on. There's one other annoying future present problem for me. This is another movie that like in the future, in the future, the, the sort of primary plot point for this, for this 2049 is men still deciding the reproductive rights of women. We haven't even talked about <laughs> what the actual plot yeah, is. Cause we can't spoil we can't it spoil because it, it's so but, deep and rich, but, but Exactly. It, it is It is a movie. And this, I mean, again, like speaking of Trump, I mean, there he's now birth yeah. control is something your employer can tell you they don't want to give you in your health plan. I, I just it's just strange to sit here and watch a movie like that's supposed to make you feel good about where it's ultimately going to wind up or that like. You're lucky you don't live in this version of reality. My friends, that version actually looks better than this version, right? Yeah, we like, don't see you know? what's on the colonies. Right. Um, I don't know. I just, I, I don't know what they wanted to do with this. I don't know why we necessarily needed it. Um, having rewatched the Ridley Scott version fairly recently, I, I still think it holds up as the thing that it is. It isn't, I don't think it's as great as the people who think it's great. But I think there's so much ingenuity and sort of formal thinking and and style thinking that it just is unlike anything we'd ever seen before. And this looks like everything that that movie hath wrought. And it can't think its way past any of that stuff. And Denis Villeneuve, the guy who made it, is a very good director of things. He also made Arrival. He, al- he made Arrival. Yeah. He made Sicario. He yeah. made Prisoners. Anyway, I'm glad I got to talk to you about it because... It's, it's also a good way. I mean, on this show, in this season, we've talked a lot about things not appearing as they seem. And we've also talked about the funhouse effect and sort of walking into a room with lots of mirrors and not knowing which version is the real you. Don't You can't tell up from down, right from left. And the ways things get compressed. And and it just it, it feels like a very fitting movie to talk about as we close out our season because... Once again, we're confronting the reality that 
um, things are worse than they seem, but also no one really has figured out how to talk about it yet. Yep. We also haven't yep. figured out how to put it into context. And this movie is not doing a very good job of telling us what the next 30 years might be like or the or the ideological, ethical, and moral issues we need to grapple with over the next couple of decades. Right. We're way past Blade Runner 2049, guys. Come uh, back when you've got Blade Runner 2099. I would just say if you want real answers, just read yourself some actual Philip K. Dick. I love PKD. I was like grinning the whole time. I'm such a PKD stan. Yeah. All right. We'll be back to talk about some more bad news. Craft matters in small ways, like how coffee is made or how a wooden table is built piece by piece. And in not-so-small ways, like how your money is cared for. At UBS, we elevate investing to a craft. We deliver our services with passion, expertise, and meticulous attention to detail. This is what investing means to UBS. Not just work, but a craft. Discover more at ubs.com forward slash craft. The value of investments may fall as well as rise, and you may not get back the amount originally invested. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with The New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are hand-picked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. Last Thursday, I was sitting at my desk. I got a news alert. It was a New York Times news alert. It was basically saying that women have come forward to accuse Harvey Weinstein of sexual harassment. And I thought about all of the times that were people I knew of. There were stories about people trying to get people on the record talking about the ways in which Harvey Weinstein had been an awful boss. He was a pretty difficult person to work for, uh, made a lot of demands, could be very unpleasant to work with. But I never had to deal with Harvey Weinstein. I only had to deal with the excellent women who represented his company. Mm Mm-hmm. And they were all lovely. But to listen to these stories, it just kind of sickened me in a lot of ways because I knew it was a tip of the iceberg. And basically the accusations, and for anybody who doesn't know, Harvey Weinstein was for many years, I would say from the the late 1980s to about the Mm mid-2000s, one of the very most important men in Hollywood. He and his brother Bob started Miramax Pictures in 1979, Mm -hmm. and it slowly became a force. A lot of the movies that we were clamoring to see at art houses were probably made by Miramax. Like Pulp Fiction? Pulp Fiction's a great example. Uh, Cinema Paradiso is Mm -hmm. an early example. Mm -hmm. The Grifters, Mr. and Mrs. Bridge. 
clerks. Oh, word. You know, sirens, things that I watched a million okay. times at the movie theater okay. when I went. The Crying Game. Okay. Um, Shakespeare in Love. He won a lot of Academy Awards. I mean, he was the person who invented the Oscar campaign as okay. we currently okay. practice okay. it. This the is red helpful. carpet became really important because of the way he, he wanted to win. This is important to understand because I think there are lots of ways to read this story. And and my reaction to it has been women like Ashley Judd, women like Angelina Jolie, women like Gwyneth Paltrow coming out, having kept these secrets for so many years is stunning to me because I think of these women as being very powerful, very empowered, and to sort of understand. It's been hard for me to grasp the system within they were which within which they were working. So thank you for the Cliff's Notes version of who this man is. Yeah. But where is he at now in his career, though? Like, Well, that's been the interesting thing about these revelations. This has been going on since the 90s, right? Since Harvey Weinstein was nearing the height of his powers and pretty much at the height of his power. And a lot of these stories are old stories from when mm-hmm. he was the king of everything. Right, right. He's diminished now. So it's it's much easier to topple. Where Max no longer exists. He's neutralized. As, we, as we've known it. it. It's owned by Disney. He and Bob have set up another company called the Weinstein Company. His place in the culture is not what it was in the 90s when he owned everything. When it, from hmm. September to December, you had to get out of the way of Harvey Weinstein or figure out a way for his Oscar campaign not to dismantle and, and, and demolish yours. And that's not true anymore. Hmm. I mean, as a hmm. cultural figure and as a business titan, he's a diminished person. And one of the reasons he's been pushed out of this company because of these allegations is because that company is fighting to not mess, maybe not to stay afloat, but it is definitely, it cannot afford to lose whatever cachet it had. And so I think it's just really important to say that it's much different this happening now than it's happening, you know, 25 years ago. But I will say it's no different than having everybody sit around at Thanksgiving dinner table and talk about how grandpa used to molest them. Do you know well, what I mean? The, it is the, the same. Yeah, yeah. It is, it's shocking nonetheless because that's a version of what's happening right well, now. Well, the open secrets we keep are the most toxic secrets among us, right? Because they they become normalized. They become part of the culture. I mean, in the Time story that just ran, Gwyneth Paltrow said, it was expected I would keep this secret. Mm-hmm. And there's a quote from the article, that, an article that says, you know, Catherine Kendall, who's an actress who appeared in the film Swingers, said... You know, she she relates an encounter in which she's been chased around a living room and she says, telling others meant I'll never work again and no one is going to care or believe me. That's Mm -hmm. how powerful an open secret like this is. And everybody wanted to work with Harvey Weinstein. He won people Oscars. He made people money. He and it wasn't so much. It was also just a cachet, you know, to have Harvey Weinstein anoint you, whether you were Meryl Streep or Ashley Judd, it meant something. Mm. You know, and we're talking at the end of the day about women who act. Right. That is a short shelf life. Yeah. And Harvey Weinstein obviously understood that. You feel his power. I used to go to Cannes, the Cannes Film Festival, and I used to, one of my favorite parts of going and writing about it was going to the opening and closing night ceremony. And you stand on the red carpet inside the palais, mm-hmm. and everybody would come up the, the famous Quasset red carpet. Mm-hmm. You come up the steps and inside. Harvey Weinstein, didn't matter who he would come with, whether it was Aja Argento uh-huh. nearby. Who is one of the women who's come forth with an Jessica accusation. Jessica Chastain. Also come forth. When Harvey Weinstein entered that little lobby, mm-hmm. the energy totally changed. 
you could feel his power. You could feel his power in a lobby full of people. I can't imagine the pressure that these women felt being alone with him. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I'm telling you, I'm a gay man. That energy wasn't for me, but I felt it. You were still... I can't imagine being alone with it. I can't imagine. The story, the, the part of the time story that really just chilled me was women was a woman who told another woman before going to work for Harvey wear a parka it'll make it a lot harder for him to do anything or Jesus. try anything wear a big coat the part that stood out for me was the part that relayed the the system that he had of accomplices mm-hmm, right mm-hmm, the mm-hmm, rp mm-hmm. says he had an elaborate system relying on the cooperation of others. Assistants booked the meetings, arranged the hotel rooms, and sometimes even delivered the talent and then disappeared. The actresses and employees recounted. They described how some of Mr. Weinstein's executives and assistants then found them agents or jobs and hushed actresses who were upset. Yeah. So everyone's working to support yeah. the behavior. It's an infrastructure. It's an infrastructure it's an of infrastructure. abuse. The more that comes out about this, the more upset and agitated I get because if, if we're hearing... Gwyneth Paltrow talk about something that happened 20 years ago. What's happening now? Mm. What is happening mm. Who's the Harvey right Weinstein now? of 2017? And that's always the thing yeah. for me. It's that, you know, these are women. These are white women. These things operate across racial and class lines, too. We care about certain kinds of stories of sexual abuse and not others. Mm-hmm. And that's also frustrating to me. But I just feel like, I don't know. I just, I find it to be very difficult to look back and castigate this person who, as you've mentioned, has no more power, which is not to say we shouldn't talk about it, but we have to be talking about who is being affected right now by right. this. The 30-year-old sexual harasser, not the not the Woody yeah. Allens, yeah. and not that Woody Allen's a sexual harasser, but he is someone on this spectrum of difficult people to reckon with because of their sexual histories, right? Right, right. And it's just safer to talk about it, and hopefully all this talking will prove cautionary for people still doing this stuff. But I don't know. And this is the thing I guess we should talk about is like, well, what does it mean that these infrastructures are still in place? Probably in a lot of places. And they're jokes. I mean, these are, you know, Seth MacFarlane made a joke about Harvey Weinstein at the 2013. I'm just reading oh, from our story, the, um, you know, about women no longer have to have pretend to, they're attracted to him anymore. Well, and, these and five women who are nominated for best actress. One of the things that a lot of these accounts have in common is. Across the board, not just with the Weinstein accusations, but across the board, women talk about sexual abuse, they talk about sexual harassment, is they worried that no one would believe them and they would have to endure this trauma and it wouldn't go anywhere. And in some ways, that's still true. But also what is shifting is that it is, I think... Easier is not the right word, but I think it is more accessible to tell your story in a way that gets amplified and is is harder to shush and harder to ignore. And so I think when women start to talk, that's why more women start to talk. And mm-hmm. I think the, that's part of the reason why some of these stories didn't come out earlier, because you were telling in the past, you were telling a room full of 10 people. Now mm-hmm. you're talking to millions of people. And, and it's a lot harder to ignore things when they go viral on Twitter. I mean, we have news stories about hashtags you know like these things get recognized at a national scale and i have a lot of issues with i mean you know social media of course it's like the ultimate double-edged sword because a lot of these companies you know probably have the same exact culture of inequality and like suppression that we're talking about but at the same time you can't deny that that's what's different it's not just that women are talking on a message board they're talking on the world's biggest yeah, message board they've got boards. megaphones they've they got have, megaphones right. i also think it matters that in this case or in these cases 
who is doing the talking and how they're speaking, right? I think it's I think it's really really important that it's Angelina Jolie, it's Gwyneth Paltrow, Ashley Judd. It is people you know who are telling stories that sound a lot like what happened to you at work yesterday. But we should also point out that it's still largely women talking and one man defending himself. Where are the men coming out that say, I knew this was happening. I'm a bit, right. I'm embarrassed. I right. didn't act up. I was a coward. I wish I had supported you. You know, I'm going to go out of my way to make sure the women in my production company or the actresses that I work with don't experience that. I mean, I, maybe this has been happening on Twitter. I haven't seen it, but where are the men coming out and saying, we don't support this well, behavior either? you get a Judd Apatow or a George Clooney, but, but I mean, for I'm the saying, most part, though. and I think you're right, the, the men have to say something because men are doing this. It's just like racism. When we talk about, when people, what, what, what can I do, black person, to be a better white person? Don't ask me! <laughs> this is not a problem for me to solve and I think for women women didn't invent sexual harassment hmm. men have to talk to men and let men know that it's not cool but I can yeah. tell you good luck with that my friends because I've been alone with the fellas and it all it takes is for Eve not to be in Eden for Adam to start talking shit Ugh. it's everywhere and it's everywhere in a place that matters which is how you spend your leisure time We've been fighting about Woody Allen for decades about, you know, with his relationship with Mia Farrow and his his what he's done with his children um, and to his children and what they've accused him of having done. We've been living with R. Kelly for all this time. And, and his songs still come on in the club. And people still dance. Jeez. People not still me. Dance. I stopped. I mean, yes. I stopped, too. But not Ugh. like we, we they're just they're not everybody has. We're also in the middle of, but not to any, to not to nearly no great as ex- an extent, talking about Louis C.K. and whether mm. Louis C.K. is 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 has been harassing women. This is really, I, I I can't express this more forcefully enough. But in the same way that we think about where our fruit comes from, where our potatoes come from, you need to be asking. Where your entertainment is coming from. Oh, dang. Okay, come through, Mr. Morris. Come through. Who's making it? How many asses were grabbed in the name of making this movie or getting this show out or putting this record out? It's a for real question. And I think the thing that actually is now occurring to me that I'm really kind of angry about is the ways in which so much of this behavior in some ways to me can be explained by how women get treated by these people and by this system. Because it's not just men. Women uphold the system in some ways, too. But, I mean, I think it's kind of, it's it's a survival. You have to, you want to, it's work. You got to keep going to work. I don't yeah. want to lose my job. That's what kept a lot of these actresses from saying anything in the first place. They Definitely. wanted to keep working. Absolutely. And it wasn't just with Harvey Weinstein. It was at all. Because if you think Harvey Weinstein's the only person doing this. Think again, think, yeah. Think all day. Yeah, he can't All be. these I mean, studio people, it might not be the person at the top of the studio, but it's cultural. Part of the first step of dismantling any isms is talking about it and creating a culture where we do believe women, we do believe victims, we do believe people when they come forth and talk about these things. That is step one. And maybe this is the beginning of that. Do you have a step two? Because I do. Yeah, hey, me. What's your step two? It's the same one I always have. Give women jobs. Oh, Let yeah. women run the damn studio. I'm not saying that crazy stuff won't happen if they are running it, but I can tell you it's not going to involve them masturbating in a hallway in front of a woman. It's just not. Well, 
It might. But <laughs> the point is we don't know because we, we don't haven't know ever seen it. We haven't, it. Had it. We haven't ever it hasn't seen happened. it. We haven't ever seen it. And part of the reason this behavior proliferates in the way that it has is because men know it's never going to happen. Do you know what I mean? I just feel like they're so safe. And I can say this to you as a person who has just been alone with men. I can hear them talk. Here's my question to you, Wesley, because I think this is very instructive for what men in your position should do. And I'm your friend and I'm not trying to put you on the spot. But what do you do when you're in an all male identified space and someone starts popping off at the mouth? Like, are you going to step in? Do you say like, what do you do? Like, what how do you resist that culture feeling the norm? Can I say something? I'm going to say or I'm going to give a real answer and a mildly sarcastic one that I would hope would stand in for a real answer, but I'm talking to you and you won't let me get away with it. Okay. But I put on Carly Simon. <laughs> That's the sarcastic answer, mm-hmm. but that has actually happened. I also do the thing that I think a lot of men in my position do, which is to try to classify how bad the talking is, right? I see, is this benign? Is this just people complaining about their girlfriends and wives? And are they complaining in a way that sounds to me in any way misogynistic or sexist? I have actually said, like, I've glowered at people. I have, like, like gone over and said, I don't, on my way out of the locker room at gym or at the gym. But I've never, I've never done the thing. I've never actually stopped a man who isn't really talking to me about this stuff. And when it, when I am a part of this conversation, it just... I'm only realizing right now that I'm hearing what I'm hearing when I'm hearing it. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it is sort of, this is like a therapy moment in a Hmm. way because, you know, I am part of these conversations, but I'm not contributing to the, I mean, I don't really have the dynamic to do it in this way. And I don't know, sometimes I just sit there and I'm just observing something that I'm in in awe of because I can't believe that like some of these people are the people who are saying some of these things and I don't say anything. So, I mean, I was about to be like, George Clooney, you can get on your high horse all you want and write your editorials in a Hollywood <laughs> Reporter. I mean, I... Well, Wesley, I mean, it's a very brave thing to admit. You know, I think it is hard and it's hard to know what to do and how to do it. And it's why when we talk about racism, it's frustrating because, you know, people are comfortable with their positions of privilege. And at the end of the day... It's hard to imagine what one person can do, right? Like it's you're trying to combat something that's way bigger than you and your belief system and how you choose to move through the world. And the thing that's compelling is that on some level, we're all guilty. It might not be about sexism or locker room, combating locker room talk, right. but it might be about around, uh, around racism. I mean, I hear things from my white friends all the time about what, about what people they're in rooms with say when there are no people of color around. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they don't know what to do either. I mean, these things all go hand in hand. And I think the reason these stories are important and the reason we have to talk about them and the reason we have to look at them through all the angles and not just say, wow, how brave, but also there has to be another new story coming that acknowledges that all of this is operating within systems of privilege. Also, the reason Gwyneth can come forward is because she's got Goop and Goop is insanely su- successful and you know powerful. Kate Loss, who worked at Facebook, was uh, Facebook employee number 50, who speaks all the time now about the company and their early policies and how they work and how they think is because she has her own stuff going on. You know, I mean, 
people can co- come forward when they're no longer, you know, when they have nothing to lose. When they have nothing to lose. Well, mm-hmm. they, they aren't afraid they anymore. They have less to lose. They have less to lose at the hands of this powerful person. So I think we have to keep that in mind also. Right. I mean, I don't know if the president is making it easier for women to come forward or easier for people who've been victims and people who are survivors to come forward. I don't know if I, I don't know. I think that also has made it easier for people who are aligned with him and his to views keep, to, keep to keep doing them and feel yeah. really justified and vindicated in their behaviors and their actions. So I'm of two minds about that. But I will say though, I have such a love-hate relationship with the internet. I used to always say that I was like in a long-term masochistic relationship with the internet, (laughs) which I still think is true. Um, But we are entering into a period of accountability made possible in some parts by the prevalence and visibility of social media. And I think we're in a culture of, yes, culture policing and identity policing and right versus wrong policing online. And, you know, everyone's so quick to point out when someone's wrong. But people are also really quick to jump on when someone raises a hand and speaks out about something and says, hey, this happened to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that can't be underestimated. That can't be overlooked. And I think it is really important, even though our colleague John Herman called Twitter a hell casino. I think that's a really apt description. <laughs> like, you can't escape. But I also think that within that comes some interesting benefits, too. And I don't know. I just I guess I'm just really curious about there is something about having receipts. Right. And even mm-hmm. though some some ways it doesn't matter, like we find the receipts and who cares? Like pe- there's accounts on Twitter that literally look at everything Trump has said that contradicts what he's saying now. It doesn't matter because he's the president. Who cares? But at the same time, just even that we can look at that across time is different and new and right. important and right. powerful. Mm-hmm. I'm a, you know, hope springs eternal in my lonely heart. So we need the tools that give us the language for how to speak up and on behalf of other people and when to step in and when not to step in. I mean, it makes me uncomfortable, too, if I hear someone saying something kind of transphobic and then I have to be like, I have to say something, but I don't know what. And I'm also afraid sometimes I'll use the wrong term, but like that fear can't be the thing that keeps us from trying. Right, right, right. We have to admit that we're we fail sometimes and try anyway. That's our show. We're taking a break. We'll be back soon to work through more of our issues with popular culture. And maybe not get anywhere, but also have fun doing it. Hopefully there'll be different issues. There'll be maybe the everything issues. will change it's... in the in that in this no, brief. You should just window. play Beyonce till the end of time because these things go on forever <laughs> the end of time. No. But we'll work through them together. I also think we should shout out all our some of our favorite things that we did this season. Like we loved having Barry Jenkins come on and talk about the craziest Oscars maybe ever. I'll never forget the time we went to a, a um, potion shop in <laughs> Brooklyn and bought oils. Everyone remember to take care of yourselves and each other while we're gone. And listen to all the Whitney Houston you possibly can. Oh my God. Just all so Whitney all the time. Just, it's out there. Listen to it. And thank you to everyone who listened, who emailed us, who wrote us, who said hello on the subway, and just told us how much you like the show. It's it really matters and it's important. No, and it's been it's I it's we hard love to know. hearing from you guys. Yeah. Thank you for making everything that this show is what it is. We'll talk to you soon. Our show is a product of the New York Times. It's produced by Henry Malovsky and Ricky Nevetsky and Max Linsky and Jenna Weiss Berman for Pineapple Street Media. Our editor is Sasha Weiss. Our editorial oversight is by Samantha Hennig and Lisa Tobin. Our music is by Kindness. It's from the album Otherness. The song is called World Restart. 
All of our links and various things are at nytimes.com slash still processing and subscribe and iTunes. So be the first to know when we come back for season three and leave us a review if you like what you hear. And you can listen to all the old ones while we're gone. So it'll be like no time has passed. All right. See you guys soon. Bye.